today I welcome Ed Kidd, Headmaster at Ridley College in Canada. In this episode, I discuss positive education, the importance of celebrating diversity, the worsening state of children's mental health due to lockdown, and the impact COVID has had on the Canadian education. I want to get into onto school. The last 12 months around the world have been extraordinary, not just in terms of our personal lives, how they've been changed, our professional lives, but from education. Tell us how the last 12 months have been for schools in Canada and in your experience with Ridley College. Well, schools in Canada, I mean, that's a that's a pretty broad topic. I mean, I, I would say generally public and independent schools, Canadian schools have largely done well. We, you know, going back to uh, March of 2020, most schools here in our province of Ontario were closed. And we're closed for the remainder of the school year. And so public and independent schools across the province had to pivot to uh, remote learning, online learning. And then we you know, went through the summer and with hopes that uh, we would be able to return in September. And there was a lot of work done you know, to prepare for the various modifications and, uh, and health regulations required for schools in Ontario to open. Uh, the government and the public health uh, agencies of Ontario and of Canada set very strict guidelines. Uh, very clear guidelines that applied to independent schools like Ridley College. And so um, we had to uh, to put that together. Uh, We started receiving international students early in August so that they could quarantine for 14 days, which was required uh, and still is required uh, of any traveler coming to to Canada. We did that here on campus and so that they were ready for the first day of school in early September. And so we proceeded through that sort of September to December timeframe with students on campus every day small class sizes, physically distanced masks, and a whole lot of sort of alternative or modified schedules to try to mitigate any of the potential harm associated with the spread of the virus. A lot of public schools in Canada, given the size of the student body, the only way to really manage size was to have uh, alternating days of school. So students would maybe go to school Monday, Wednesday, and Friday one week, and Tuesday and Thursday the next week. It would be alternating cohorts. Uh, We were, just by virtue of our size, we were able to have students junior kindergarten to grade 12 on campus every day. But then on December 26th, during the winter holidays, we went into a province-wide shutdown, just with escalating numbers across the province. And that lasted until February 8th. So we were, school was closed again. We were in remote learning. Nevertheless, we had boarding students on campus who stayed here during the winter holidays. And during that lockdown, we had about 120 boarding students on campus during that time. February 8th, then we reopened and uh, we have been back in school session again, trying to uh, to manage as uh, as the vaccine is slowly being rolled out. So this would be the experience with most independent schools across Canada. But as I say, um, public schools by and large have just by virtue of their size have had to go to alternating days. Yeah, I mean, it has been extraordinary. And it's, you know, you've got to take your hats off to education, to schools in the way that they adapted to the challenges. How easy was it for you to go to fully remote learning? Was that something you were already set up to do? Or was it a very steep learning curve? No, I'm proud to say that it was relatively easy. I mean, maybe easy is not the right word, but we were successful. 
This occurred, as I say, we were on our two-week March holiday, our March break, and the shutdown happened in the middle of that. So teachers and students were not here, and I we immediately went to work. We had a full week of intense work uh, with the administration team to get ready for to launch what we called Ridley Remote Learning, R2L. And then on the first day back from the holiday, we had two days of professional learning with teachers, and then we launched on the Wednesday. And it was successful. I mean, it was a, there was a learning curve with regard to uh, the use of Microsoft Teams or Zoom. But by and large, um, just given the, the nature of our use of technology in the past, our use of online applications and learning tools, I think it was, it was relatively a smooth and pretty quick transition. I can't say that for, and I think largely Canadian independent schools, that was their experience. I think they've been very, very successful in, in sort of nimbly transitioning to a, a different way of remote learning. I can't say that was universally the the situation in public schools in Ontario. And again, largely just the size of these huge school boards and large schools. It's difficult to quickly transition when you're in a, a large system like that. Yeah. And inevitably, you know, you would have tried some things, learned some things. Is there anything that has changed since you've come back out of lockdown or certainly when you went back into lockdown over the winter break that you did differently than the first time that you went into it? Uh, in terms of online, we, we made some slight adjustments in our schedule in the way we used our time during the day or throughout the week. But with regard to asynchronous learning, right, we, again, we were a combination of synchronous and asynchronous. And largely the way we used and scheduled asynchronous time, I think, was a slight adjustment in our second lockdown. But by and large, uh, I would say we things remain the same as our experience from the spring of 2020. The children have obviously suffered academically, you know, maybe there's not been enough content and they've not been able to get through, you know, where they needed to. Have you seen a big difference in the amount and the progress of these students who have been affected because of remote learning during this time? Just in terms of uh, sort of their their well-being, is that what you're referring to? No, no, more, more in terms of their academic content. Because I certainly yeah. know in the UK, you know, there's been a lot of debate and you know, I've seen it firsthand with, with two of my four children yeah. that they are in critical years where they haven't had access mm-hmm. to A, enough teaching and being able to get through enough of the content within their kind of curriculum to be able yeah. to be at the right point to be able to sit these kind of national exams. Have you noticed, is that been similar in Canada or... Again, I'll speak to uh, sort of uh, Ridley's experience and by and large, our brother and sister schools and independent schools across Canada. I I don't think that has been our experience. Uh, We have been able to maintain a continuity of learning despite, I wouldn't say interruptions. They're not necessarily interruptions. They're just simply shifts to a different modality of learning, right? The continuity of learning has has remained even throughout the summer, right? We offered a number of additional learning opportunities throughout the summer for our families just to keep them, you know, sharp, I, I, I suppose, uh, as they headed into September. So, no, we have not. Uh, and we're an IB school. We're preparing for our IB diploma exams uh, in early May. We're not feeling like uh, our students have been diminished in terms of their preparation or, uh, you know, keeping on pace with the curriculum. And again, I, I don't have inside knowledge, but uh, I, I am hearing from parents concerned that things have really, really slowed down in, in public school education, largely began because of the alternating schedules and that fearing that, that they are maybe uh, missing out and perhaps are not prepared for the next grade level. Big standardized exams are not really a thing in Canada, with the exception of some schools that are international baccalaureate schools or maybe teach the advanced placement. So it's not that uh, they are not prepared for an exam. 
exam, but they may not be prepared for, you know, in, in terms of a scope and sequence of preparing for the next grade level. There may be, I think this summer, there's going to be a tremendous demand for students uh, getting extra tutorial and extra work in preparation for that next grade level in September. Yeah, and, and we're certainly seeing that here. Uh, the divide, you know, it was it was always there between state and independent education. And obviously, you know, we, we've seen that widen, you know, because of ease of access to technology, obviously great resources. You've got the funds to be able to carry on and deliver a great education. Do you feel that there is an obligation on the independent sector to do more to, to help the state education sector to, you know, to bridge this gap, whether it's offering teaching resources, online content, these summer courses that you mentioned? Is that something? that the government should own? Well, this is a great question. And I know it's a huge topic in the UK. And I know that many independent schools uh, in the UK are engaged in this type of uh, teacher training and professional learning that they offer to local state schools. And uh, it really, the landscape is fairly significantly different in Canada, I would say. So even, uh, I mean, do I think it's a duty and obligation? I, do, I think it's a duty and obligation of, of the government and the Ministry of Education. I say we are fortunate to live in a, a province that has, I think, by all standards, um, uh, an outstanding world-class public education system. Our Ontario, we have a college of teachers, a professional college of teachers, tremendous resources and professional development. Although perhaps there's a duty and obligation for independent schools, just given perhaps some of their resources, I, I don't think there's necessarily a demand. You know, there's, there's not a space for us to be involved in, in helping our public school colleagues, largely because I think that our, our government does such a good job. It's a slightly, uh, I think it's a slightly different context, but a great question. This has obviously been an especially stressful and anxious time for young people. With isolation and depression, a constant risk in this age of lockdown and closed campuses, the mental health and wellness of students has never been more important. How have your students handled this interruption to their education? Again, I don't. I don't think there has been an interruption to their education. I think it has been a. Uh, there have been some challenges and obstacles and some needs for incredible flexibility that have been put in their path. But by and large, I think very. I think the answer is very well. They've handled it very well, and I've just been so impressed and really so proud of the way our students and our faculty have handled uh, a, a difficult and challenging moment, right? It has just reminded us, and I, you know, I have to say going into this experience, I thought this might be the case. Um, it's not the students we need to worry about, right? It's, it's the adults. The students have once again proven that they are incredibly resilient and, uh, and flexible, right? And they figured out and they generally have been positive and an optimistic and hopeful given sort of the the week by week challenges that have been thrown their way and the disappointments right the disappointments of especially our, some of our senior students our grade 11 and grade 12 students who are having sort of the annual rituals and rites of passage removed and yet uh, there's not there's not a whole lot of bitterness or anger or you know their disappointment is not manifested there's tremendous amount of positivity and I, um, I, I attended a, I remember uh, in the spring of last year, I attended a great webinar with Dr. Martin Seligman, who uh, founder of Positive Psychology, which is, plays a prominent role at Ridley, and uh, Sir Richard Laird, who is an uh, economist, uh, professor at King's College, Cambridge, you know, writes about uh, um, happiness and, and economies around the world. They told a story just around the London Blitz uh, during the war. And 
and the NHS, their anticipation of this explosion, this pandemic of mental health issues that never materialized, never appeared, right? Because because people rose to the challenge in this crisis, you know, found inner wells of strength to be resilient. And I, I think in a smaller way, I mean, this is not the London Blitz by any stretch of the imagination, but in a small way, I do think that's what we see in our students, right? They're yeah. stepping up and they're finding ways of, of being resilient. And it's a uh, you know, our job, I think, is to remind them of that, to show them that. Like you, you can take on and face great suffering and challenges in your life and remain resilient, right? But I think also it's it's about being open and honest with all your students to say that, you know, if you are struggling, you know, we understand these are this is a, this is a very difficult time. You know, there'll be anxiety about coming back, there'll be, you know, all the usual problems and pressures of being locked down in your room. They're already used to having a very, you know, online life, which is generally out of school. And now they're having to have an online life in school and out of school. You know, what is Ridley College doing to ensure that their students' mental health does come first? Yeah, we launched this year with a theme of resilience. That theme has played itself out in a number of different ways across the school year, from uh, guest speakers to, um, you know, reflections in chapel or at assemblies um, or special sort of activities or week themed weeks, you know, with a real emphasis on talking about resilience and what are the, the building blocks or the foundation of, of being resilient. So focus on relationships, right? Focus on meaning and purpose. Focus on engagement. Right. And being being busy that allows you to build those and, and discover, you know, those inner wells of uh, of resilience that do exist within you. So, no, I, I agree with you. There's no doubt that um, it, it, you know, students have faced we all have faced a degree of isolation and loneliness at times. We attempted even when we were remote, right, even when we were in a remote and we're looking at each other on screen for day in and day out for weeks we maintained advisory every day. Advisory is a small group of students who have an advisor. We increased their uh, interaction to make sure that they saw each other every day of the week, Monday to Friday. We increased, we continued to hold virtual events like chapel twice a week and assembly, right? So the sense of like getting together and feeling like you're part of something that's larger than yourself which is so much a part of the ethos of a boarding school. We tried to maintain that even when we were in a remote, virtual sort of environment. Yeah, because the social aspect is a massive part. There's one thing which is the academic, but the huge part of a boarding school and well, any school is the social part. You go there to mix with your friends, the community side, um, to let your hair down and have fun. So, you know, put it, putting those on, as you've said, um, must have been a really great initiative that they would have benefited from. Well, I was just going to say, and then when we came together, when we were finally able to uh, to come to school, even in, you know, distanced and even in cohorts, we put emphasis on having large community events, safe community events that involve the entire school. So we've had, we had a, a winter Santa Claus parade, the entire school. Uh, we had a Halloween parade. Uh, we just hosted on a Wednesday last week when it was plus 20, unusually warm for Niagara at this time of year. Um, but we had a winter carnival, as ironic as that sounds. Uh, but it was brilliant. And that, you know, that goes a long way. I hope you're enjoying the Inspiring Schools podcast. We're always on the hunt for guests with vision and a desire to share them. If you'd like to be involved or know of someone with great ideas at a school near you, please drop me an email to podcast at interactiveschools.com and my team will be in touch. You founded an organization called the Canadian Positive Education Network. Tell me about this and how it came about. 
it goes back to Ridley's strategic plan, which was launched in 2014, which really uh, had at its core this idea of inspiring flourishing lives, which is naturally uh, had an affinity to positive psychology, its manifestation in education as positive education. One of the goals, you know, from that early strap plan was eventually to create a, an association of like-minded schools uh, so as to um, uh, bring this concept and influence both independent and public or state schools uh, across North America and to provide resources and professional learning and connect schools. So um, I have to say in 2014, we were very much an island in this endeavor. But over the years, uh, we started to collect some, some other schools that were really beginning to be interested in, whether it's character education or positive education or well-being. And it became started to become a central piece of their mission. And so about two years ago, I thought, now is the time and I convened a gathering of three other heads of schools here in Ontario as a starting point. Uh, so that's Upper Canada College in Toronto, Appleby College in Oakville, Ontario, and Lakefield College School, which is in Peterborough, Ontario. And we were all, we all had this affinity towards the work. And so uh, we put uh, the, the groundwork in place to create this association. We don't want to this to be an independent school association. We desperately want to get it up and running to attract interest from higher education and research in Canada, from universities, and then also uh, to work with governments, uh, local provincial governments, right, who are in charge of education and state sector or, or public schools, of which there are quite a few increasingly uh, uh, school boards across province that are really very much interested in well-being education or social emotional learning, SEL. So it's a movement. Uh, we hosted a two-day conference back in 2019, the spring of 2019 here at Ridley, to really, uh, the first of its kind in Canada, uh, flourish. It was a, a positive education conference. We had some great guest speakers and workshops, and, and we had a variety of educators from various schools both private as and independent as well as uh, public schools. So, so that's how it started. Uh, we are very much, um, I would say, we hit the pause button as we try to navigate the last 12 months in this pandemic. But um, certainly in come September, we're going to renew our efforts to continue to spread the, the association and make it a, a much larger entity. Yeah, I mean, to me, I mean, it's, it's a no brainer. I mean, who, who wouldn't want positive education? I, you know, I, I can't believe anyone sign up to negative education. There's a lot more to it, but it's a great model. And, you know, I certainly believe that more schools should adopt this positive education approach. On your website, it says that by adopting science, Ridley equips students to deal with daily demands of life. The way you do that involves activities such as practicing mindfulness. Is this right for every child? I think at its core, mindfulness is something that uh, should be taught in schools and is right for every child. It is practiced in, in a variety of different ways, right? It's really at its core, it's about uh, slowing down, slowing down your cognitive processes, being more aware, hopefully in control, if not more uh, in control of managing and being aware of your emotions so that they're not guiding you, right? There's, th there's this metaphor with regard to, you know, positive emotions and emotional regulation closely associated with stoicism, the metaphor of the elephant and the rider. And to some degree, mindfulness is about, first of all, recognizing that you're riding an elephant, and second of all, learning how to control it, not completely subdue it, but to recognize it, understand what's going on, and to be able to steer it accordingly. What that is, is uh, emotional maturity. I think that is absolutely a central component of a, of a good education. 
Well-being and mindfulness has been a big thread in schools for many years now. It's a great break away from their 24-7 always-on culture. Do you adopt yourself mindfulness as part of your daily routine? I do. I do now. You know, this is the thing, right? It, it is a, uh, we talk about inspiring, flourishing lives. And and one aspect is mindfulness. You know, it's really, uh, it's really just a small uh, practice or piece of a much larger sort of philosophy and concept. It's not as if at 17 or 18 years old, our students, our alumni, our graduates are these fully functioning, flourishing, mature, self-actualized individuals, right? We're not claiming that, but we've given them the building blocks, right? We've introduced Introduce them to the concept that this is something you should aspire towards, right? And that we hope that they will continue to practice, be intrigued, you know, throughout their adult life. So, so me at the age of 50, yeah, I'm still working on it. I have really, I'd say in the last five years, been I've returned to my university days and the and the ancient Stoics. And so I I do have a a degree of early morning ritual and routine of doing three things: exercising, moving my body. And then, uh, a, a, you know, a small degree of meditation and quietude, right, in the early morning, just sort of ordering my thoughts or calming my thoughts. And then immediately when I'm done that, I pull out a little bit of Marcus Aurelius and the meditations and I read a short little snippet. And it's just a routine and a ritual that prepares me for the day. Getting into that routine, I think it's, it's hugely important to be in the moment, to feel yourself, to be able to reflect and gather your thoughts. We don't do enough of it. And life is extraordinarily busy and fast paced at the moment. We don't no. find the time, but maybe we, we need to. I think the frenetic energy of social media, uh, especially for our, our teenagers, our young people, it can be quite discombobulating. It's it just sort of this bite-sized swiping. Someone needs to tell them that there is such a thing as emotional regulation, right? Uh, that you're not a victim to external phenomena, right? Um, that you, you can control how you perceive the external world. Yeah. And whose role is that? Is that primarily the teachers or is that parents? Yeah, I, th I think it's a bit of both, but um, it is a central role that education and schools and teachers and coaches and advisors need to, to play in the lives of their children. We are redefining what it means to be well-educated. And I say redefining, in, in some ways, it's like, this is like an ancient wisdom that we've forgotten <laughs> uh, in terms of what, it, what does it mean to be well-educated in terms of character education and, and values-based education and preparing you know, your, your soul to, to live a self-actualized adult life. There's always a, a role, uh, obviously, between the home and parents and teachers in the school and a partnership. Hopefully, there's a partnership and alignment. Uh, and I know many families... Uh, uh, they do adhere to this. They uh, introduce these ideas to their children. But I'm convinced that as a, an industry, as educators, this is exactly what we should be introducing. In addition to, you know, the cognitive knowledge-based pursuit of various disciplines like physics and, and mathematics, we should also be teaching them how to prepare themselves to be, to live a good life, right? Yeah. I mean, you mentioned self-actualization, um, you know, the pinnacle of Maslow's hierarchy of needs. When you start to look at love and belonging, esteem, you know, and you start to build up through, through Maslow's hierarchy, of needs. I certainly believe that I think getting that point of self-actualization is, is harder 
nowadays because it's so 24-7 always on, as you put it. Is there a way in which our children can reach self-actualization? I hope so. <laughs> that's, a, I mean, that's a great question. I, that, that's what I think we're trying to do uh, here at Ridley and other schools that are like-minded in, in sort of increasingly emphasizing those non-cognitive aspects to our education system. We're introducing to young people that this is even something that they should aspire toward and that here are the habits and the activities and the practices that require decades of you know, work and maybe intermittently, right? Like I'm not suggesting that when you're 19 and you're heading off to university that <laughs> you're going to practice meditating in the morning every day, but maybe you return to that when you're an early professional in your early 30s, right? Yeah. And you're just beginning your family and you are reintroduced to something that you were taught in school. I mean, this is the most influential developmentally moment in their lives, right? It is foundational. And so I do think so. That's what we've bet our entire strategy and our entire vision and mission around. It's needed now more than ever for the very reasons you've just described. I agree. I think it's, it is needed more than ever. I do worry about love and belonging. I think the rules have changed. Um, I think the playing fields that our children kind of occupy now online say that the expectations of what love and belonging actually means is completely changed. And I know recently in the UK press, there was a lot, particularly from UK independent schools and boarding schools, of the amount of, I suppose, it's sex shaming boys and girls as young as 11, the peer pressure, what their level of understanding and expectation is and going, you know what, that's normal. And it's not, they're normalizing something that is not normal. And so almost like the thresholds to acceptability have completely gone out the window. And I don't know what the answer is. Is that educating the teachers to be able to help the kids as well as parents? Because I think parents have got to a point of kind of like, I just don't know. I, I can't keep control of what's going on in this little black rectangle that they that they have on, you know, that they're connected to. Yeah, um, I yeah. don't know what they're doing, how they're acting. They won't let me near it. You kind of parent by they yeah. seem all right, but you yeah. don't know the darkness that's lurking. Yeah, I mean, two things to respond to that. One is, um, I think a great writer, a thinker in this space is a psychologist from New York University, a guy named Jonathan Haidt. He published a book uh, two years ago called The Coddling of the American Mind. And uh, he has a lot to talk about in terms of the, what he see, sees as the real dangers of social media and our uh, sort of societal wrapping our heads around this. Like, how do you parent? How do you teach in the age of, of social media that has such a, a strong, almost neural sort of impact on a, a generation, right? Who are have grown up with it, who've known nothing else, right? Yeah. And the second thing is, you know, when I hear this and I, you know, I'm the head of a boarding school, one of Canada's largest boarding schools. Um, I did not go to a boarding school. I had no boarding school uh, experience prior to coming to Ridley. And I am a believer. <laughs> I don't I don't believe it's necessarily, the, you know, the right answer or style of education for, for everyone or every child, but it is for many. And I think one of the antidotes is getting out of, you know, a child's bedroom after school on an afternoon, right? Making sure that they are active Active and engaged and with like face to face with other, you know, teenagers, peers, colleagues, as well as adults who have healthy interactions and relationships with them. Right. Uh, and so a boarding school is like it is a little village <laughs> and that's what 24 hours a day, seven days a week. That's exactly what it's like. Right. So there are so many opportunities to get out of, you know, inside your own head, inside your own little box, your black box that you've just described and interact and be engaged and be busy and be scheduled and be routine. And I do think that is incredibly helpful. <laughs> yeah. 
and, and, and also be safe. You can control an environment a lot more. One of the great things about boarding schools is your international diversity. Ridley has a rich and diverse student population from around 65 countries. Is having students from across the world the only way to ensure a global view and global views are understood or is it just the most authentic? That's a great question. Um, you know, teaching global understanding and, and what, I, what I refer to as global competency, right? Developing global competency can be achieved through a solid curriculum that is devoted to that, those ideals. And I think the International Baccalaureate is at its sort of core philosophy, uh, is um, a curriculum that is devoted to um, understanding that there are different perspectives around the world. They are right in their own ways in some regards. And I know that you can also achieve it through great educators, right? And great educators who themselves have perhaps to, uh, traveled or lived or are from uh, different global perspectives and worldviews. Uh, it can be achieved through, you know, exchange programs and travel opportunities within schools. Um, so it is, it is possible. And I know many schools do, but we are so blessed to have this diversity here on campus to an extent. I mean, it is, I think you use the term authentic. It is incredibly authentic. Uh, and it occurs, it's, it's the hidden curriculum, right? It is the hidden curriculum that occurs at dinner time, uh, late at night when they're, you know, in the common room talking to each other, intense philosophical or global issues debate. Obviously, it occurs in the classroom, you know, we have a, a great debate and you have worldviews from a Nigerian and a Mexican and a Russian and a, and a kid from Newfoundland. It's this incredibly rich tapestry of, of different worldviews. Uh, it really is a, you know, United Nations of sorts here on campus. When you live with each other and you play with each other, it, it just sort of soaks in. I'm talking about dialogue, right? Conversation. It's also relationships, right? Like when you have a best friend who uh, you go off to university, you go to your different universities, but your best friend from boarding school is from Mexico. You feel like you can go anywhere in the world and you're going to have a connection. And it, it makes you feel like the world is a smaller place as a result. And, you know, it's not just the international students either, because we have students from all over Canada and Canada is a very large, filled with very distinct regions. Um, and so uh, it's even those perspectives and worldviews of students. I mentioned Newfoundland earlier, right, which is which is really, uh, you know, a variation of Ireland. And then students from Quebec and students from the Western provinces and interacting with a kid from Vietnam. And it teaches a degree of humility as well. Right. And recognizing that maybe things aren't the way that my cloistered little world previously taught me that they were. Ed, thanks so much for your time today. I can't wait till we're allowed to travel again and I can book my flight and come and visit you and, and see Ridley College. But in the meantime, thanks ever so much. Please stay safe and keep inspiring schools. You can connect with me on Twitter, Instagram and via LinkedIn. Remember, keep inspiring schools. We need more future school thinking now.